Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hello, spooktacular people. This is Stephen Pappas, and we are an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast. Every episode is entirely listener-supported. If you'd like to support the show, click on the Support the Show tab at historygoesbump.com. We are also required to tell you that everything is good here. We are all right. We are safe. We will talk to you soon. Supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Goes Bump Podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 193rd episode of the History Goes Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we have a legend show. We're going to talk about fairies today, Denise. Very, very cool. We like fairies. We're going to have a lot of fun with this. Uh, there's a lot of different ideas out there about fairies. I think for most people, Denise, they're like you and I. We grew up with fairies. Uh, the one that comes to mind for us is probably Tinkerbell. Yes, and now she has many friends that have joined her. I absolutely adored fairies when I was a little kid. I loved looking through all of the folktale and mythology type of books out there. I remember there were coloring books, anything that had to do with fairies and woodland creatures. I just loved all that stuff. So I'm really going to enjoy sharing this with everybody today. Things are getting a little bit crazy for Stephen. Yes, they are. (laughs) I'm starting to worry about him. Uh, If you guys are executive producers and you want to do a bumper, let us know and uh, we'll we'll get you set up with a little script or what have you. And uh, we'd love to have more of you get involved with that. Yeah, I think that has been one of the really fun things for us is to have our own executive producers and our own listeners doing those bumpers because we're always excited when we get one to hear what they've done. So thank you. And if you don't have all the little bells and whistles to put in there, I usually do that for you. So you don't have to have all of that stuff. Also, we realized that PayPal made some changes to our donation button that's on our website, historygoesbump.com. We recently had somebody sign up and I was like, oh, you just need to check the little box about monthly recurring. And apparently that box is no longer there. All it lets you do with the donation button is make a one-time donation, which might explain why we've been getting a lot of one-time donations lately. Uh, If you do want to become somebody who's doing it as a monthly recurring and you don't want to have to remember to do it yourself every month, I put a subscribe button up there underneath the donate button. And I've rigged that so that there are four options there and you can pick whichever of those. If you want to do something other than those, let me know and I'll make another button to put up there. Uh, I guess that's the way we're going to have to do it. I don't know why they took away the easy way to do it. I guess they wanted to make it more difficult. So, Or they just wanted people to push your buttons. <laughs> Thanks, Denise. That's fabulous. You're welcome. So anyway, that's there. If you want to give a one-time donation, hit the donate button. If you want to do a recurring monthly through PayPal, then hit the subscribe button. Otherwise, Patreon is really the easiest way to do it. That takes care of everything, and I don't have to keep track of stuff, but... It's entirely up to you. We appreciate anything that comes our way. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Christopher. Hey, Christopher. Lorna. Hi, Lorna. Edward. Hey, Edward. Carly. Hello, Carly. And Donald. Hi, Donald. And now, this moment in oddity. 
And today's moment in oddity was suggested by Rachel Thompson. There is a small grotto in Surrey, England that has many local legends told about it. This grotto is known as Mother Ludlam's Cave. Early stories claim that monks found the cave and the spring inside, which was used for drinking water. It was thought that the spring had healing properties and was named Lud after the Celtic god of healing. The most interesting story related to the cave is the legend of Mother Ludlam. Mother Ludlam was a white witch who would help out the local townspeople. She would lend them whatever they needed, but it was always with the stipulation that it had to be returned in two days. Villagers would approach the cave and ask Mother Ludlam for what they needed, and when they returned home, that item would be sitting on their front stoop. One man borrowed a cauldron. He forgot to return it within the two days, and Mother Ludlam flew into a rage. She went seeking him, and when he found out, he took the cauldron and hid in Frencham Church. That is one version of the story. The most told tale is that it was not a man who came to borrow the cauldron, but the devil himself. Mother Ludlam saw the devil's hoof print, and she refused to give him the cauldron, so he stole it. It is said that as he ran, he leapt over the ground, forming hills that are now known as Devil's Jumps near Church. He finally dropped the cauldron, or kettle, on the last one, which is called Kettleberry Hill. Mother Ludlam retrieved the dropped cauldron and hid it in the Frencham Church, where the devil wouldn't look for it. These sound like fun legends about a real cave, but the cauldron actually can be seen to this very day at Frencham Church, and that certainly is odd. Welcome. We have been expecting you. <laughs> and now, this month in history. In the month of March, on the 31st day in 1685, Johann Sebastian Bach was born in Eisenach, Thuringia, Germany. Bach began school at the age of seven. He studied Latin and received religious studies in the Lutheran faith. His faith would influence his future musical career. Tragedy struck for him at the tender age of ten when both his parents died and he found himself an orphan. There would be a silver lining as his older brother Johann Christoph took him in and raised him. Christoph was a church organist in Ordruf, and he taught Bach how to play. Bach lived with him until he was 15. He went away to a school in Lundberg, where he'd won a spot because of his beautiful soprano singing voice. His voice changed later, and Bach decided to switch to playing instruments. He chose the violin and the harpsichord. Bach became a composer, but during his lifetime, he was more known for his organ playing than his composing. Some of his famous compositions include Toccata and Fugue in D minor, Mass in B minor, the Brandenburg Concertos, and the Well-Tempered Clavier. He died in Leipzig on July 28, 1750. Today, he is considered one of the greatest Western composers of all time. And this episode was suggested to us by Vicki Luther and Amy Harris-Martinez. A belief in fairies has existed for centuries and stretches all around the world. Early stories of fairies originated in medieval Western Europe, and this is where we got the term fairy tales. The roots of the oldest tale of fairy creatures comes from a folk tale named The Smith and the Devil. Some fairy tales are thought to be up to 6,000 years old. Stories of fairies traveled with the colonists to America and are still strong in Appalachian and Ozark lore. There are many theories as to what fairies may be, and because of this, they take on many forms in folklore. While most people believe that fairies are not real, the belief in these creatures is very real. And there are tales that go beyond superstition and leave open the possibility that fairies may just exist. Join us as we explore the folklore about these fascinating beings and examine some of the tales that are told about them. When it comes to appearances, most of us grew up with the image of a cute little winged pixie that was little more than a human butterfly. 
I remember some of the early images, and we're going to talk about them in a little bit. Were Did you see those pictures of Cottingley Glen Fairies, Denise, from way back in the early 1900s? I don't know if I saw those fairies, but I've always just seen kind of the little winged people. Well, that's what I always thought fairies would look like, is what they look like in those uh, pictures that those girls had taken. And it just captured my imagination. Of course, something very similar to Tinkerbell. But fairies come in a variety of forms and are generally much larger than, I guess when you're thinking of Tinkerbell, you're thinking about six inches tall, something like that, maybe a little bit shorter. But most of them tend to be a little bit bigger than that. The smallest fairies are described as little more than balls of light, similar to fireflies. But these orbs of light can be as large as two to three inches in diameter. And a lot of the time you'll hear them referred to as will-o'-wisps. And again, bringing up Disney. <laughs> Brave. <laughs> always brings, brings to mind that movie Brave because that's what she's following. Uh, especially for some of you young people who are listening, that little blue orb of light that she's following. They keep flicking up throughout the woods. Those are will-o'-wisps. Then there are the gnome-sized fairies, which are basically equated with little people. They run about two to three feet tall. They like to wear the color red and green. Human-sized fairies are not as common and usually appear more shadowy, and they are wearing somber coloring. Occasionally, they have cloaks on. They like to conceal themselves. All sizes have been described as winged, but fairies do not necessarily all have wings. They usually have fair skin, and it can come in a variety of pastel coloring. And all fairies are thought to be magical creatures. I think if I was a fairy, I'd want to be lavender. Of course you would, because you love purple. And I like lavender, so it would be perfect. There are many theories to the origins of fairies. There are beliefs that they have descended from the ancient race of elves, and so they have a similar look, but with the upgrade of being able to fly. Elementals are spirit creatures of air, water, fire, and earth, and there are some that believe that fairies are really elementals. It's important to note that some spiritual practices see elementals as branching out into pixies, sprites, devas, elves, brownies, leprechauns, gnomes, merfolk, kelpies, hobgoblins, and fairies. Even more interesting is that there are those who classify fairies as these individual creatures, making fairies the top classification. Yeah, so while sometimes you'll see that list and then they'll throw fairies in with that whole list, as I was doing a lot of the research here, I kept finding time and again that these are different classifications of fairies. So each one of those creatures is basically a part of fairies. That's something that I never knew until this episode either. I didn't either. Perhaps because of the wings, fairies are thought to be a type of angel. Early Christian beliefs held that if someone died without being baptized, then they would become a fairy creature. It was taught that the fallen angels that went with Lucifer became fairies when God stopped them in mid-flight on their way to hell. They were told to stay right where they were, which is why some are in the air, some are in the water, and some are in the earth. These accounts are found in Irish, Scottish, and Scandinavian folklore. Others think they are souls caught between heaven and hell in some kind of limbo, and still other tales claim that fairies are the offspring of demons and angels coming together. Now, what I find fascinating about this, Denise, is because, you know, I like to dabble in what they call fringe Christianity. And I like to dabble in fringe, too, like fringe jackets, fringe vests, <laughs> fringe purses. Just saying. And for anybody who's listened to our Ghosts in the Bible episode, you probably already know that. And so when I started reading this stuff, of course, when it comes to Christianity and pagan beliefs, they sometimes would mix the two to try to bring them into the religious beliefs of Christianity say, hey, you can bring that pagan stuff over here and we'll just kind of mix it in. But if you take a step back for a moment and you look at angels kind of in the way that I do, where we wonder what exactly they are and if you have your good angels and then your bad angels, which are the fallen angels, is it possible that these fairy-like creatures winged were people seeing angels back in these medieval times and they were equating them to fairies and as i have listened to people being interviewed about fairies on different paranormal shows and such i had never really thought of fairies in a negative way i'd always kind of just thought of them as these little cute imp-like creatures and maybe they might tease you or something but i never thought of them maybe having some evil characteristics to them or being darker but as you talk to people about these fairies especially the ones that are the taller sized 
they seem to be the ones that have more of the evil characteristics, which makes you start to look over at the fallen angel kind of thing. And are we looking at these fairies that maybe that's what they are? Or are they the djinn? <laughs> well, if it's Rosemary Ellen Guiley, of course it's the djinn. <laughs> See, but I listened. I, but I also thought it was fascinating because it said, are these maybe the offspring of demons and angels coming together? Now, for me personally, I don't think that demons are the opposite of angels. I've come to this place where I think that when the Bible's talked about the Nephilim, that fallen angels got together with females that were human and their offspring were these Nephilim. And because they were these half-human creatures... We don't know what kind of a state of their spirit or soul might be in. And so when they die, we wonder where do their souls go? And I've always thought that maybe that's where demons come from. And so demons, to me, in the way I believe, is that they are the souls of these Nephilim. So now if you're mixing those with angels, that's kind of weird too. So just some really interesting thoughts here as we get a little deep. These beliefs in early Christianity, as I said, were adapted from pagan beliefs, which is where fairies have their true origins. All branches of the Celtic families adopted stories of fairies, and those beliefs spread to the British Isles and on to France and then Germany. The Welsh have a matriarchal society, and so they would call fairies the mothers, and they believed that they came down from the mother goddess, which is what they worshipped. Fairies in their lore were also depicted as females living in fairyland, which was also known as the land of women. An interesting incorporation of fairies in the pagan pentagram makes fairies seem to be a spirit type elemental. So in the pentagram, you have these five points. You've got your air, water, fire, earth, and then their spirit. And fairies are apparently the spirit incarnate. So they are an elemental. They may not necessarily be elementals that are all of those characteristics, air, water, fire, earth. They might be their own separate classification of elemental, which is just the spirit. One of the reasons why it is rare to see a fairy is because of the spirit nature and the idea that they live in a different world or what we might term in our modern language, a different dimension. Hundreds of years ago, they didn't have the kind of language we do and maybe not even the thinking of different dimensions, but that's what we definitely call it now. What makes it interesting to me is if you hear people talk about cryptozoology, a creature like a Bigfoot, a lot of people will say, well, why don't we see any Bigfoot anywhere? Why don't we see, you know, a carcass or something? And one of the reasons that people give out there that study this kind of thing or that go out looking for Bigfoot and other crypto creatures is that they might be multidimensional and so they can step in and out. And that might be a reason why people don't necessarily see fairies if they're stepping in and out of these different dimensions. And if these people back in the medieval times... Maybe they saw this kind of going back and forth and they didn't have different words for it. So they would call it a different land, like fairyland is what the Welsh were calling it. There are also others who call this dimension referred to as the land of Tirnanog, which is the land of eternal youth. And I'm sure I said that wrong. The veil between these worlds seems to be thinner at twilight. And this is when these creatures are most likely to be seen. Now, if you as a human, Denise, you look over there and you go, oh, look, the veil just split open and here comes a fairy through there. I think I'd like to go the other direction. And become a fairy? Yeah, basically. Or I don't know, would that go be visit. counting? You could be tempunking and seeing if, can you really slip into another dimension? If you try to pass into that and you are able to accomplish that feat, it is said that you will not return and that if you try, you'll die. Oh, wow. So if you're going to jump over to be a fairy, you're stuck. That's it. Except for Princess Aurora went to live with the fairies. Just saying. Well, I guess she did go to live with them. She, they didn't live with her. Because hmm. they took her away. And they know. raised her to protect her. And she's still alive. She slept for a while, but she's still alive. As we covered on our episode about Icelandic folklore, Icelanders are superstitious about elf rocks where they believe elves live. Those rocks are not to be moved. Other countries have similar beliefs about fairy domiciles, which makes sense when considering that elves and fairies may be one and the same. The Irish have burial mounds that they call she, which means fairy mound, because they believe fairies lived in these mounds. Hundreds of these still dot the Irish landscape. So the Irish believe that fairies are connected to the deadlands and that they go back and forth from earth to heaven to the underworld. This is interesting when thinking of fairies as spirit beings. 
At Samhain, fairies leave their fairy hills, according to Irish lore. The purpose of fairies really depends on the fairy. Some are mischievous imps leading travelers astray in the woods, while others are helpful. They might give you proper directions or bring you food if you happen to be lost in the woods. If you awaken with tangled hair, and that would really pertain to you, Denise, because you have longer hair, I don't have to worry about this with my shorter hair. Those could be elf locks that a fairy has twisted into your hair as you slept. Very cool. I get elf locks a lot. (laughs) They occasionally help themselves to small items, which we would also call... Stilling. (laughs) Consumption, actually, back in the day, was blamed on fairies in some places, as it was thought that they were keeping these people awake all night, making them dance and such. So this lack of sleep was causing the people to waste away because they were so tired and not getting enough rest at night. How funny, with all the historical tours we've been on, I've never heard that theory. I have never heard that before either, so I thought that was really interesting. Yes. Most fairies were thought to be hard workers, but shy and diminutive in stature. It's thought that they raised animals to be of smaller stature as well. And we got Tiana. So is she a little fairy dog? (laughs) She is a little fairy dog. Brownies, for example, were welcome around farms in the house because they were happy to help with chores. There is historical evidence of little people races in Europe and the British Isle, which could be what spawns stories of fairies. Uh, You know, anytime you hear about, quote unquote, gnomes and that kind of thing, if you think that there were some of these and we found them as we've talked about different locations around the world, Denise, these races of little people seem to be in lots of places like uh, was it Hawaii? We were talking about the Minihani. Minihuni. Yeah. And so basically that's what they had here in Europe and the British Isles. And people are wondering if that's kind of where they got the idea for fairies. You know, what's interesting here, too, is that the ones that did chores that they liked were called brownies. I wonder if that's where they got the name of the precursor to the Girl Scouts, because I've always wondered, why did they call them brownies? That's a really good question. But since those particular fairies were thought to do the chores and stuff, and that's why I was a little bit disappointed in brownies when I finally got to go, because we were learning how to beat eggs to a peak and sew and do those kind of chores rather than like whittle and make pinewood derby. I actually wanted to be a Cub Scout, but that's beside the point. So isn't that funny that they were called brownies and that's what they did was like chores, like household chores. Well, if any of our listeners know the history behind the Girl Scouts and Brownies, we'd love to know. I would say yes, that that makes perfect sense to me. So again, this is just a theory that I just thought of right now. This is not researched. There is a sinister side to fairies, though, that involves changelings. Many of you have probably heard of changelings. These are fairy babies that have been substituted for human babies. You may not know, however, why fairies exchange babies. Female fairies have great difficulty in carrying babies and even more difficulty giving birth. If they manage to carry a baby to full term, it is generally deformed in some way. There's actually a genetic reason for this because fairy races are small in number and so inbreeding is common. They bring these sickly and deformed fairy babies into the human world and exchange them for healthy human babies. They are then taught the fairy ways and strengthen the bloodlines. Adult humans can be exchanged with the changeling too. It is rare, but it has happened according to lore. These humans are trapped with fairy magic for a length of time to help them forget their former lives. Then they are used to produce healthy fairy babies. The changeling left behind usually gives itself away because of its ill-tempered nature. Yeah, so what I've always thought interesting whenever you hear these stories about changelings is wouldn't the parents recognize this is not my baby? (laughs) And no right away. But apparently somehow that baby takes on some of the characteristics of your own baby. So you don't know. It's just there's a little something different about them and you just can't place it. Or let's say you are a husband and your wife has been changed out. You might notice that she does things a little weird. It kind of reminds me of the pod person thing. That you always accuse pod people of stealing me. Yes. When you're acting kind of weird, I, I tell the pod people to bring back my wife. There are things that humans can use to keep fairies away. Fairies do not like iron, particularly if it is cold iron that has yet to be heated for shaping. And I initially read that as ironing and I went, well, maybe I'm a fairy because (laughs) I don't like to iron at all. 
Nope, I do your ironing for you. So I'm a anti-fairy. I will, I will look at something and go, okay, can this go in the wash and the dryer without having to be ironed? I will not buy it if it needs that. Okay, we're going to get real here. She doesn't just look at it. She'll put it on and say, is this going to be okay? I'm like, give it to me. That's how that story really goes. <laughs> well, that's after I've already bought something and washed it and dried oh. it and it needs to be ironed. Oh, okay. You're talking about stuff in the store. You're, yes. you're judging whether it needs to be ironed. And then there's me who's like, oh, cool. Linen, everything that needs to be hand washed. This is lovely. <laughs> Steel is an alloy of iron and is said to weaken fairies, although it is not toxic to them like iron is. Charms made from salt, herbs like rosemary, St. John's wort, and dill, grave soil, and rowan wood weakens fairies. Planting a rowan tree near the door works best. Newfoundland folklore claims that bread can keep the beings away, which is a good thing because I love bread. And fairies must be (laughs) gluten-free. Holy water can make them ill. And if you know the fairy's real name, you have power over them, which again leans us back over towards the, I've heard that about demons, that if you know the name of a demon, it gives you power over them. That's why they don't like to tell you what their name is. It almost makes you wonder if people have taken the fairy lore that was there and kind of incorporated that into their the Christ, Christian belief system and so just changed it from fairy to demon, maybe? Sure. I mean, that's what happens when we look at our holidays. It's a lot of just intermixing and reinterpreting. So I think we've got the same thing going on here. Interesting. Horseshoes are not just a symbol of good luck. They apparently are a fairy deterrent, particularly if those horseshoes are made from iron. A row of iron nails would be hammered into the headboard of a bed where a new mother would lie down with her baby. So that would help prevent your baby from becoming a changeling. And Scotland held the belief that if the father's pants were hung at the foot of the bed, it would frighten the fairies. Now, I don't know. Is that because uh, dad hasn't been washing his pants for quite a while? (laughs) (laughs) Wrapping the baby in the father's shirt would have the same effect as well. And remember that a fairy is like a vampire in that it cannot enter your home without being invited. So just always remember, never invite strangers into your home. Which is weird. So how do they make changelings because you wouldn't say oh please come in and steal my baby i'm wondering if maybe, maybe out, outside, outside of the house like yeah. you're at the park and it changes it and so you mm-hmm. take the changeling home yeah or you know back in the day maybe a mother would be out doing the wash and she's hanging the wash on a line or something and she's got the baby outside with her yeah because i just thought it would be hard to well i guess not so hard if you were outside with the baby in thailand they have a fairy-like creature that they call nari pan They're said to be a combination of plant and animal. They stand less than three feet tall and have female bodies with a camouflage coloring to their skin. Locals sometimes refer to them as the Thai flower pod women. In Buddhist folklore, the Nari Palm came to Buddha as he meditates and they distract him. This happens mostly during the day as they hide in the trees at night. The legends also describe the Nari Pan as fruit on trees that become alive after falling from the trees and live for a week. After the week is over, their bodies wither into little carcasses that can be held in the hand. A temple outside of Bangkok has a couple of them on display. They have unusually long arms and a plant-like structure on their heads. Sci-Fi's Destination Truth went out in search of them on an episode, but did not find any. You know what's weird? When it's talking about like the plant-like body do you remember they didn't look like people but remember those fish that look like dragons that look like leaves too do you remember those that we saw in that one aquarium yes they were super cool looking they look like almost like dr seuss animals but they were real they were like weren't they called dragonfish there was there was two different ones because i took pictures of them because they were just fascinating to me but they reminded me of like creatures you would find in a dr seuss book but they were just like swimming in the yeah, because it's not, they're, they're not lionfish. No. Dragon leaf. Dragon. There seems to be like a leaf because they did look, they look like, like leaves. Yeah, they look like seahorses that have extra appendages and weird leafy things coming off yeah, of them. Yeah, they were the coolest things ever. But, yeah. But it, it almost like the description of this almost seems like those but on the land kind of. And that's what's interesting about this, because when I when I heard these being talked about and I saw the picture and the way they were described, is that a lot of people would immediately interpret this as maybe it, it was a fetus that did not come to full term. And so it's mummified. 
But they said what what was weird is that they have these unusually long arms so that they didn't seem like they were the fetuses. And then you have this plant-like structure on their heads and they're not sure what that was supposed to be. There's all these weird things out there that makes you wonder if maybe this wasn't some kind of, I don't know, some other kind of humanoid-like creature that used to exist at one time and we happen to have a few that have mummified and that's what these are? Or is it some kind of... Maybe it wasn't something that was ever living and it was made out of something that looked like it had once been living. I don't know. I did look up and they're called leafy sea dragons. Oh, okay. They're very cool. Yes. One of the events that caused many to lose faith in fairies were the hoax photos that came out in the early 1900s known as the fairies of Cottingley Glen. These were the ones I was mentioning earlier, and I'm sure most of our listeners have probably seen these photographs. There were five of them in this collection. There were these two cousins, Frances Griffiths and Elsie Wright. The girls appear in these photos with these tiny little human-like creatures that are flitting about all around them. They look like they're either flying or they're dancing. They have period-style haircuts, flowing gowns, and then these large wings on their backs. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he believed in the authenticity of the pictures wholeheartedly. He always blows my mind because He was a genius when it comes to Sherlock Holmes. I'm a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes and the way he would deduce the things and these crimes that Doyle would come up with and have Sherlock Holmes solve. It was just amazing. But then when you look at how easily he believed in some of the stuff with spiritualism and then in these pictures and that he would just buy into them wholeheartedly, there was no skepticism in him at all. Those two things just don't seem like they go together. I don't know why. He was so into these pictures that he actually published two of them and wrote a piece to go with them for this magazine called The Strand. And this was in 1920. And then he went even further and authored a book about the Cottingley fairies and his belief in them. And he called that book The Coming of the Fairies. City News wrote of the story in 1921. It seems at this point that we must either believe in the almost incredible mystery of the fairy or in the almost incredible wonders of faked photographs. Now, we have referred to these photos as a hoax, but Harold Snelling, who is a fellow spiritualist and also an expert on photographic retouching, said, These dancing figures are not made of paper nor any fabric. They are not painted on a photograph background, but what gets me most is that all these figures have moved during the exposure. Snelling reprinted and retouched the negatives to get crisper images. Those images looked even more real than the originals. He and Doyle agreed that the girls were too young to pull off such a hoax. The two girls grew into women, and they were hounded several times in their adult lives to tell the truth. They were always very evasive with their answers until they were older women in their 70s and 80s. They professed that the fairies in the photographs were actually drawings Elsie had made, cut out, and set in place with hat pins. They traced them from the Princess Mary's gift book and placed cardboard behind them that was fastened with zinc oxide bandage tape. Francis wrote in 1983, I'm fed up with all these stories. I hated those photographs and cringe every time I see them. I thought it was a joke, but everyone else kept it going. It should have died a natural death 60 years ago. What is fascinating about this story is that although the women admitted the pictures were a hoax, they maintained that they really saw fairies and interacted with them. And this they both maintained until their deaths. In the 1980s, Ronnie Bennett, a forester in Cottonlee Woods, came forward with a fairy encounter he had while working there. When they showed themselves about nine years ago, there was a slight drizzle around. I saw three fairies in the woods, and I have never seen them since. They were just about 10 inches tall and just stared at me. There is no way the Cottonlee Fairies is a hoax. Yeah, so what was interesting about these girls is that they got this idea that they were going to apparently make these photographs. They were really, really clever. And when you look at the pictures, if you don't look at them from the... uh, our perspective of in 2017. I mean, you look at the pictures now and you're like, oh my God, those are ridiculous. How could anybody ever believe that those were real? But there is the fifth photograph and there's movement, enough movement in it that a lot of the fairies in it look kind of blurry. And Frances, there were several accounts that I read that even though she said that she was tired of this, that it was just a hoax, 
she always maintained that that fifth picture was genuine. And there are some people who believe her that that, that it was genuine. Now, when I look at it, I'm still going, no, I can kind of see the cutout heads. It looks similar to the other ones. But there is some weird movement there. And so I could see why people would kind of lean towards believing in them. But some of the other ones, it, it really is ridiculous. Even one of them, you could see the hat pin is it looks like it's supposed to be the belly button of one of the fairies. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle would say, oh, and see, there's its belly button. And you're going, can't you see that's a hat pin? But it's just, it's interesting how, of course, they kept the hoax going, as we've discussed before. When you lie, you just kind of have to keep compounding the lie to keep it going. And so why did they wait so long to finally say that it was a hoax? I don't know if it was shame or whatever. But why did they maintain that they actually did talk to fairies and, and did see them? Were they cutting out these pictures and taking the pictures because they really had seen something and so they were just emulating what they'd had because they couldn't actually get pictures of the real deal? I don't know. And you're talking back in that time too. I mean, it's sometimes hard for some of some of us to think because now you can take amazing pictures on your phone. But back back then, cameras weren't, you know, so I can see why people would think with that kind of photography, because now, I mean, we have Photoshop, we have this, that, we can do all the stuff, but that stuff did not exist back when these pictures were done. So I could see why people would kind of jump in with both feet and go, whoa. Yeah. And to pull off a hoax back then would have taken a lot more work. I mean, now you could put fairies in a picture and make them look pretty darn real because just watching a, a Disney animated film nowadays, especially a, a Pixar one, I mean, they make the hair almost looks real. And these are cartoons. So, you know, or if you're watching CGI, it's amazing what we can make look real now. So you could hoax all kinds of things. But back then, I mean, that took a lot of work for those girls to cut those out and make them look somewhat, especially the when they were retouched by that guy who was redoing them and taking the shadowing out. It was that much harder to actually see that there was kind of a two-dimensional part to them. And talking about, like you said, we all carry around phones now that have cameras on them. So it's going to get to a point where it's much easier for us to be skeptical about stuff because when everybody has a camera right on their hip, basically, why aren't we getting pictures of Bigfoot and some kind of sea creature and fairies and ghosts and angels and all these things? Why aren't we getting pictures of them if we've got all these cameras floating around? You think we'd be able to catch our stuff constantly? Because they are the camera. Can I just say that we're recording this at 10 o'clock at night and we both need to go to bed? <laughs> I actually wish that this was video because the look on your face was pretty good. <laughs> William Blake was a poet and an artist and apparently a believer in fairies. It's said that he had the following conversation with a woman. Did you ever see a fairy's funeral, madam? Said Blake to a lady who happened to sit next to him. Never, sir, said the lady. I have said Blake, but not before last night. And he went on to tell how in his garden he had seen, quote, a procession of creatures of the size and color of green and gray grasshoppers bearing a body laid out on a rose leaf, which they buried with songs and then disappeared. Was Blake, since he was a poet and an artist, was he just making something up? Or did he really honestly see something like that? I saw ants dragging a leaf across the thing with, I don't know, a piece <laughs> of something on it. It could have been. It was this picnic going down the road. The fairy flag of Dunvegan Castle is a very interesting story. Dunvegan Castle on the island of Skye is the ancestral home of the McLeod clan. The family came into possession of the flag when the Fae wrapped the infant MacLeod in it when he was at the point of death. The family was told that they could wave the flag two more times when they were in distress and the Fae would come to help. The second time it was waved was at a battle in Waternish in 1520 and it was used to rally MacLeod's men. The flag was later cut into small pieces and carried by the MacLeod warriors during World War II. The soldiers believed the flag would give them magical protection. Those who carried a piece of the flag were said to have come home alive. What is left of the fairy flag is preserved under glass on the wall at Dunvegan Castle. There is still one more wave of the flag left. So it makes you wonder if they will ever wave that flag one more time and what dire thing needs to be happening for them to do it and would the fairies come and help them. When I read this story, Denise, that blew my mind. Of course, it is a part of superstition for you to take these pieces of a flag into battle with you. But I thought all the way up until World War II, 
So this is going from the 1500s all the way to World War II that they are holding on to the belief that this flag is from the Fey people and that it had some kind of healing power and that they still have the flag to this day preserved under glass. That would be really cool to see, actually. Yeah, and where did it come from? I mean, was it just some flag and they have some kind of story that they've passed down with it? Or This stuff, I love this stuff because it, it makes my brain go, well, maybe I could believe something like that. Wouldn't it be cool if that really was? And is that why these guys came back? Did they have some kind of magical protection? Possibly. William Butterfield was the keeper of Ilkley Wells in West Yorkshire, England, and he claimed to have a fairy encounter in 1815. As he drew near the wells, he took out of his pocket the massive iron key and placed it in the lock. But there was something canny about it, and instead of the key lifting the lever, it only turned round and round in the lock. He drew the key back to see that it was all right and declared it was the same that he had on the previous night hung up behind his own door down at home. Then he endeavored to push the door open, and no sooner did he push it slightly ajar than it was as quickly pushed back again. At last, with one supreme effort, he forced it perfectly open, and back it blew with a great bang. Then whirr, 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 such a noise and sight. All over the water and dipping into it was a lot of little creatures, all dressed in green from head to foot, none of them more than 18 inches high, and making a chatter and jabber thoroughly unintelligible. They seemed to be taking a bath, only they bathed with all their clothes on. Soon, however, one or two of them began to make off, bounding over the walls like squirrels. Finding they were all making ready for decamping and wanting to have a word with them, he shouted at the top of his voice. Indeed, he declared afterwards he couldn't find anything else to say or do. Hello there. Then away the whole tribe went, helter-skelter, toppling and tumbling, head over heels, heels over heads, and all the while making a noise not unlike a disturbed nest of young partridges. The sight was so unusual that he declared he either couldn't or dare not attempt to rush after them. He stood as still and confounded, he said, as old Jeremiah Lister, down there at Wheatley did, half a century previous, when a witch from Ilkley put an ash riddle upon the side of the river wharf and sailed across it to where he was standing. So did this guy really see a bunch of little creatures taking a bath in there and were they really holding the door shut so he couldn't come in? I don't know. It's, it's hard to say since we weren't direct witnesses of it but no and i mean this is a guy who keeps the wells there why would he make that up and i would think back in 1815 they would think you were nuts with such a story you wouldn't be likely to make such a thing up now maybe he drinks a lot of ale who knows yeah bad water i'm not sure janet board wrote fairies real encounters with little people she reported that in 1968, contractors in Donegal would not cut down a gnarled tree that stood in the way of a new road that they were building because it was believed that this tree was a fairy tree. One of the contractors said, There is something uncanny about it. The roots are not more than a couple of feet below ground, yet it defied a hurricane seven years ago. There are multiple stories of people getting sick after cutting fairy thorns and putting up buildings across fairy paths. People living in homes blocking a fairy path would open their windows at night so that the fairies could pass through and then the occupants would not become ill. A girl became lost in 1935 on Lizard, which was a fairy fort in County Mayo. There was a gap to the outer bank that she should have been able to pass through, but some kind of external force kept her from passing. This force turned her around so that she was walking back into the fort. She tried that again and again, but it was as if there was an invisible wall and it felt hostile to her. Later, the barrier disappeared and she was able to leave. Board also writes of an impossibly tiny shoe found in Ireland and a large group of tiny people seen playing in the fairy bog in Wales. This would be a fascinating book to get a hold of. There's also apparently a dictionary of fairies that has a whole bunch of information in it as well. A Somerset farmer's wife claimed in 1962 that she had lost her way at Berkshire Downs and was put on the right track by a small man in green who appeared out of nowhere and then disappeared after pointing her in the right direction. A woman in Cornwall also claimed to see a small green man with a pointed hood and pointed ears as she was making her way to the ferry. Her daughter saw the same creature and they made a mad dash for the ferry, totally terrified. Danica wrote, I do believe in fairies. My daughters and I rented a trailer in El Cajon, California in 2010. So here we have an American story, Denise. One morning we were all eating breakfast in the kitchen and out of the corner of my eye I saw a fairy floating in the air. It was a female about three feet in height sprinkling gold dust all around her. 
At the same time, my oldest daughter said, Mommy, Mommy, there's a fairy sprinkling gold dust everywhere over by the window. My daughters and I also experienced some other unexplained phenomenon in that trailer. It was getting a little too scary for us. We only stayed living in that trailer for 10 days and moved out as quickly as we could. I think my daughters and I somehow attract the unexplained paranormal, whatever you want to call it, because we've encountered several more experiences with the paranormal that were scary. Thankfully, it's almost been a year that we've not encountered anything. We've seen things that no one would believe. Prayer and faith have kept us safe. So did fairies actually exist? Is it possible that they still exist today? Most of the former Celtic nations of Brittany, Germany, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland have people who believe that fairies still exist. There is a theory that they are rarely seen because they are a dying breed. Still others reason that the creatures are disappearing because we failed to believe in them. Do you believe in fairies? That is for you to decide. As an open-minded skeptic, my answer is maybe. Maybe. I am open to believing in them. Let me put it that way. I've never seen one. I don't know anybody personally who's seen one, but uh, I believe they're they're possible. Yes, because anything is possible. Sure. Well, that was fascinating. Obviously, there have been reams, just as we said with the spiritualism, reams have been written about that. Reams have been written about fairies. So we just basically covered just a little smattering of the basics and a few stories out there. There are literally thousands of stories of encounters people have had with fairies. And of course, there's a lot of fictionalized stories that incorporate fairies, because obviously you guys have all heard fairy tales. So there's just lots and lots that you can get into. But we wanted to kind of get in there and and have a little um, generalized look at fairies. And so that was interesting. I enjoyed that. Yeah, and fun. On our next episode, we're going to have another legend one that's similar to, remember when we did the episode about legends of Mexico, Denise? Yes. Well, we're going to do Filipino legends on the next episode. Very, very cool. And it's going to be even better because we're not going to have to try to pronounce all of those Filipino words, Denise. Hurrah! That is great (laughs) news, Diane. We are actually going to have our listener who suggested these legends to us joining us, and that is April Garassi. So thankfully, she will be doing the pronunciation of some of these things. What was really cool about this, Denise, is April had emailed us probably about a month ago, and it usually takes us about two to three weeks to hammer down a day and a time to try to record together because we're working with their schedule and both of our schedules. And time zones. and Yes. So it gets kind of crazy trying to schedule all of these things together. So it took us about three weeks to hammer it down. We finally got the day and the time and everything. And so we had it finalized. And then Johnny, who is in the uh, Spooktacular crew, out of the blue, posted in the group and said, hey, I'm dating this beautiful Filipino woman and I'm just fascinated with the legends there and she really won't talk about them, isn't really into that kind of thing, but I would love to hear about them. And I thought, are you kidding me? (laughs) It just, the synchronicity that happens around the show, it's one of those, another one of those paranormal type things to me personally, because out of all of the things that you could ask for or suggest, Most people are not going to do that with Filipino legends. And then to do it and ask us the day after I finalize the plans that we're going to be talking to somebody about Filipino legends just blows my mind. So that that is very coincidental. (laughs) Wink, wink. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Courtney had posted in the Spooktacular crew, she was listening to the Spiritualism and the Eddie Brothers House episode. She can crack the knuckle of her big toe. Really? With yes. like no no fingers or anything, just crack it. <laughs> she says it doesn't sound like a ghost or anything or knocking on the wall, but she can do it. Well, congratulations. That's awesome. <laughs> and we want to give a shout out to Lori over on Instagram. Remember that cool lettering that I showed you, Denise, that picture? And it was her podcast playlist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She is the one who did that. It looks very, very cool. Oh, it is neat. Got some great lettering there. And we also got an email from Carly. I am a huge fan of the show. I listen to a lot of podcasts and yours has quickly become my favorite. I stumbled across your podcast a few months ago after hearing Jessica Chobot talk about how amazing it was on Bizarre States. She was right. I am a film student at UNC School of the Arts 
and always love listening to new and exciting content. A few of your podcasts have actually inspired scripts. Thank you for your great work, and I look forward to your new shows. And she also had suggested that we do The Jersey Devil, which we did feature in episode 80. And we got another email from Allison. Hi, ladies. Bit late on listening to this episode, but I was really excited when I saw it pop up. I've been to Hampton Court twice so far, and after listening, I can't wait to visit it again. I'm writing to you because the episode made me rethink something that a friend and I experienced during our trip in college. I hadn't been aware of the hauntings at the palace during either of my visits. I figured what I'm about to tell you was just a gimmick or something to give people a little fright. A group of us had been walking through the hallway that led to the chapel and stopped outside of its doors. A guide from the group ahead saw us and was just wrapping up talking about Catherine's run to beg for forgiveness as we came up behind them. The majority of our group followed after the tour while I stayed behind with a friend to take some pictures out the window. We had been there for a few minutes talking to each other and taking pictures when all of a sudden we heard the sound of footsteps pounding against the wooden floors coming our way. We both moved to the side to let whoever it was pass, only to hear a muffled scream just as the running abruptly stopped. After a few seconds of panic, both of us looked at each other in disbelief and tried to see if we could find any hidden speakers in the hallway. When we couldn't find anything, we figured maybe there was a sound system in the chapel since the doors were locked and they weren't letting anyone in. We didn't know anything about the Screaming Lady legend. It makes me wonder if a few of the other things that happened on the trip weren't just gimmicks or tricks of the eye. Great podcast as always. I can't wait for the next episode. So what's interesting about that experience is I believe Amanda was the same way where she didn't know about the ghost in that room. So these girls didn't know that either. And they all had a very similar experience, only they actually heard the muffled screaming too. Yeah. And the thing with that too, so you couldn't have had that like preconceived notion to where something else could be turned into it. Because like you said, they had no idea. Now, of course, I would want to be able to go through every inch of the room to make sure there was no speaker there that was making the sound effects. But I really, I, I can't think of why Hampton Court Palace would want to put speakers up and do a gimmick. To me, it seems like there wouldn't be a point to it. So I don't know. Very interesting to have a couple of people that are quote unquote our listeners that have had that same experience. Exactly. It just solidifies it that much more. Yes. We do have a review to share. This one is from Canada, Denise. Oh, Canada. And we love you Canadians. You are second only to America with reviews for us. So they're beating all the other countries out there. So the rest of you countries have to get hopping. Music fan 88. Great listen. Five stars. Just found the podcast a few weeks ago and I'm slowly making my way through the archives. I listen to it during my hour-long commute to and from work, and it makes the drive a lot less dull. Keep up the great work, ladies. Love listening to your show. Well, thank you, music fan. We appreciate that. We want to thank all of you for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Carly Bornman and Marta Selway. Thanks. Be sociable, drop the chain rattling, neck biting and shape shifting and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.